All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Authors Unite show. Today, I got Bathsheba DeMuth with us. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course, grateful to have you on. So can you start us off? Just tell us a little bit more about you and what you do. Yes, so I am an environmental historian, which means that I study the relationship between people and nature in the past, broadly speaking. More specifically, I talk about the relationship between people and the Arctic environment. So I look at the Russian and North American Arctic for about the last 200 years. Um, and when I'm not doing that, uh, when I'm not hanging out in the Arctic, I teach at Brown University in Rhode Island. Okay, so wait, tell me, first question is tell me more about that. Uh, about like the Arctic. About the Arctic? Um, yeah, yeah I'm, actually, I'm not even aware of it. Like I know right. what you're but I'm not aware of what you're talking about. So. Right. Um, so I think the easiest way to talk about this is to talk about why it is that I study the Arctic, because I was born and raised in Iowa, which is very, very far from the north. Um, I'm actually familiar with Iowa. Right. Iowa, you can put on a map. Uh, the no, part no, of the I world did, I study, I, not so much. <laughs> I, I lived there for six months in West Des Moines. Oh, awesome. So like yeah. you actually know where Iowa is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I know. I know it a little bit. <laughs> Um, so I come from a little town called Decorah, which is very northeast part of Iowa, but um, often people just think Idaho when they hear Iowa, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, those two do get mixed up pretty often. <laughs> so I grew up in this little town in Iowa, and I realized when I was getting ready to apply to college that I didn't know where I wanted to go to college. I didn't know what I wanted to study. Um, but I also knew that college is really expensive and it takes four years. And so I figured that I should probably have a better idea about what I wanted to do before I committed to that. And so I convinced my parents that I should take a gap year instead of going straight through. And at the time, this was in 1999, so 20 years ago, gap years were not very common. They weren't as institutionalized as they are now. So I hooked up with this pretty ad hoc internship organization in Massachusetts um, that basically brokered me access to a list of places that would take on, you know, 18 year olds with a high school diploma uh, to do stuff. Oh, and wow. from this, yeah, pretty random, from this list, I put together an itinerary uh, to go to a bunch of places. The first one was a little village in the Yukon Territory in Canada, about 80 miles north of the Arctic Circle. And then I was going to go to Costa Rica. And then I was going to go to a bunch of other places. Long story short, I've still never made it to Costa Rica because I got stuck in this little village in the Arctic um, for several years. I ended up staying for quite a while. Um, and that, that's what really kicked off my interest in the Arctic. Um, and I, I became so fascinated and really wanted to stay up north because my primary job was to train sled dogs. And so that's what I did for a couple of years in this really tiny little village. Got it. Okay. And so, okay. And then when you teach at Brown University, what do you teach there? So I teach environmental history. Um, some of it is focused on the Arctic. Some of it is much more general. Uh, so one of the big classes I teach is an environmental history from um, 1492 to the present all over the world, looking at the ways, different ways in which people have used natural resources, have changed environments, different ways environments have changed people. Um, and then I also do kind of more specific seminars that are focused on the Arctic or focused on Russia or places like that. Got it. Okay. So the, this is interesting. Okay. So 
Um, question, uh, the one thing that really caught me there was how environments have changed people. Can you elaborate a little bit there? Yeah, so this is something that I think my experience living up in the Arctic for years kind of taught me to pay attention to, which is, you know, if you live in a, a temperate climate like I'm in right now in the Northeast, it's pretty easy to think about people as the kind of dominant force in terms of making decisions because, you know, we pay attention to the weather. You don't want to get snowed in if you're on an airplane or something like that. But generally speaking, people are doing all the action. But when I was living up in the North, it was pretty clear on any given day that, you know, I was making a bunch of choices, but I was also really dependent on the fact that the climate is much more extreme on the behavior of other animals like grizzly bears and moose and kind of other other creatures in the world were often also making decisions that were really important. And so I think that kind of um, set my frame of reference for how I thought about history. And then when I'm looking at Arctic history in particular, because the environment is so extreme, it's a place where you can watch, you know, even very technologically adept, advanced societies like the United States or the Soviet Union, really having to change the ways in which they are approaching resource development and things like that because of um, because of the environmental circumstances. Got it. Okay. And like, so, I mean, what are your thoughts on, and, and maybe this is different than what, exactly what you're talking about, but um, for, for me, right, I am actually, I lived in Philadelphia uh, growing up for, I guess, 18 years before I went to college. And I, I would always get like a seasonal like depression. Like I was literally a different person. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's why now I live, excuse me, I live down in Miami now. And, you know, I, I, moved, I lived in Iowa for six months. I actually lived up in Toronto for six months as well, you know, all through the parts of figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. And it's just so crazy to me how I found where at least the best place so far for me is in Miami where it's warm all year round. I, am, I have literally just no, really no issues at all. But when I would be in cold climates, there would just be like this six month, in, at least in the Northeast, like Philadelphia, usually it's like half the year, um, of just being like depressed. Right. And I think environment is so important for people. But, you know, some people are the opposite. Some people love, you know, like winter. Like they yeah, I'm a, I'm a total cold weather person, but. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's why I'm, so is that, so in the cold is what you feel more energized and like just, I guess, like better overall about things rather than in like a beach setting? Yeah, I'm a total disaster in the heat. I'm just a slug. My brain doesn't work well. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, much, I'm much more kind of alive and with it when it's cold. Um, but it. I, I do know that that's, you know, not my mom is like, why did you never go to Costa Rica? Because, you know, it's warm there because <laughs> she's much more of a warm weather person. So, so yes, it does yeah. make a big difference. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, the cold like turns my brain off and then the warm turns it on. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's so wow. We're all, I guess yeah, we're all different. So Miami uh, is perfect. <laughs> yeah. Miami is perfect. And now I will say this in the summertime in Miami, it's, it's a little too much. So I, I don't like like 120 degree weather. Right. Um, but you know, 70 to 90 is, is nice. That's a good, that's a good spot. Um, Okay, now, now how did you like land the position at Brown University? How, how did you go about that? Um, so I don't know how many academics you've, you've ended up interviewing, but if you've interviewed any of us, you probably know that it's a, it's a dicey world out there in terms of getting university positions. Um, oh. So some of it was luck. 
um, the, the number of people who graduate with PhDs every year is way, way, way larger than the number of positions there are uh, for people holding PhDs in universities. Um, so I happened to graduate, uh, I had done this, this project in grad school where I was looking at both the US and Russian sides of the Bering Strait in the Arctic. Um, and it was an environmental history project, a Russia history project, a US history project. And I graduated at a time, you know, I think part of why I landed a position at such a great place to, to work is that um, it was a moment when people were starting to pay attention to the Arctic. Um, you know, it's in the news a lot. It's in the news because of climate change. It's in the news because, you know, Russia is kind of expanding pretty aggressively into the Arctic for oil and gas development. Um, and so people were paying attention, <laughs> um, which I think really helped because otherwise, you know, I study a part of the world that's pretty obscure um, in your your day to day life. Uh, so that certainly helped is having having a kind of project that people could relate to um, or, or think was interesting in some ways. Got it. Okay. And so like in your free time, when, when you're not teaching or doing stuff with the Arctic, what, what do you like to do? Um, I like to run. That's oh, okay. yeah, me like too. a, yeah, that's like a pretty critical part of keeping my brain in order and the oh, rest yeah. of me in you order. That <laughs> too. Um, okay. Sorry. Go ahead. But you get, you can run in Miami, which impresses me because man, once it's over 80 degrees, it is rough going for well, me at least. This, this is my secret. So right now, the current time, 11.20 a.m. Eastern, I would not go running at this time because, I, yeah, it would be very yeah. difficult. But in the morning. Right in the morning. When, yeah, right when the sun's coming up or at night when the sun's going down. Right. Those are the perfect times. But, yeah, I'm with you where I've seen people down here running when it's like noon. <laughs> oh, yeah, and I'm like, and I'm talking, I've seen it in July and August too. And I'm like, yo, that is, that is like risky to your health. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's humid enough down there. You can like just, you know, you can be in bad shape fast. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I don't know how those people do it. I, but I'm, um, I, I, I want to talk about that because I, I'm the same way. Like if I do not, if I don't get cardio in the morning, my whole day just feels off. Um, and yeah, it, it definitely, it, you know, whatever releases endorphins or something, but without cardio mentally, I don't think I would be like, I don't think I'd be like extremely stable in all honesty. No, I, I agree. I really worry about like an injury that benches me because it's such yeah. a, you know, it, it's, it's not just like, because I think it's good to be physically active. It makes my brain work better and makes me a calmer person. And, um, okay. and it's not the same, like going to the gym and lifting weights, which yeah. I do because you're like supposed to, it does not have the same benefits. <laughs> no, no, not, not at all. That's, I mean, I do, uh, my, my brother actually like helps to, to train me and I do weightlifting with him uh, pretty much every morning. And that's more for like, I guess, physique, if you will. Um, right. But, um, but the, the running and I do, I actually really like the Stairmaster. Um, yeah. The Stairmaster will just like knock Like I like <laughs> the way that I say it is like the first thing I do when I wake up is try to like beat the crap out of myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then the day is fine. Yeah. Yeah. In a healthy way. So if I can, if I can get on the Stairmaster for like 30 minutes to an hour and go really hard and like, just, you know, be completely, you know, just beat the crap myself in that way. Then the rest of the day seems to go well. But if I skip that step, then yeah, the rest of the day is just downhill. That's rough. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you do you run road races at all? Do that kind no, of stuff? 
You know, it's funny. I, literally this morning, um, I was at, uh, my brother and I were at the gym down here, and we heard a guy talking about like a running group or whatever. So I, I want to talk to him about it because I've always run on my own because it's kind of like my my way of just like getting clarity, you know, just like how yeah. to like think. But it would kind of be nice. Okay, but the other side of that is I don't think I've actually stretched myself to how much I can actually run because, you know, if you have a group and you're like, yo, we're running 15 miles today. It's like, right. oh, well, you know, you, you tend to stay with the group just based off of accountability, like principles. Yes. Um, yeah. So I haven't really done that, you know? So, so what is the road race? What is that about? Oh, it's just like, you know, people who run half marathons and marathons okay. and, do, you do know, you do those? I, I haven't run a marathon in a couple of years, but in grad school, I ran them pretty regularly. Um, okay. And that was... Um, what was it like? Like, uh, yeah, I, a marathon seems insane to me. A half a marathon seems doable. I think that's exactly right. A half marathon, I think most fit people can, you know, be in half marathon shape without a, a ton of extra running. And then a marathon is, it's like a level of distance that seems carefully calibrated to the point where you really are starting to kind of break down um like basically everything after mile 18 um so those last eight miles is really just a mental game about like can you keep going when everything in your body is telling you that you probably shouldn't um so if you like that kind of sort of mental um it's really a mental challenge at that point as much as a physical one um they, they're kind of fulfilling, but I'm not actually sure they're good for you at some level because they really are kind of pushing, pushing your yeah. whole muscular system past maybe where it wants to go. That's what I've always thought. I'm like, cause there, there is some, there is some level where it just gets to this point where it's like, is this, is this helping me or is this putting my like heart into like, some right. <laughs> um, like point. So that's why like, I, I feel like long walks too. Um, yeah. Like, now it takes a lot of time, right? So you got to have time, but I think a long walk, like a 10 mile walk, and I know that that's a long walk, but I'm just saying a 10 mile walk is probably perfect because it doesn't stress out your system, but you still got right. distance. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's, that's cool. Anybody who likes running, I'm always like, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, that is like, <laughs> uh, so, and okay. And then, as far as, so how, how long have you been teaching at Brown? This is my fourth year at Brown. Fourth year. Okay, got it. And then how does it, is there something like, is it, it's called like a 10 years, do they have that at colleges? Like, so is it after like, like, do you plan on doing that until like you retire? Probably. Um, I really, partly just because I really like my job and I work with amazing students. So like yeah. half of my job is teaching um, and then half of my job is writing books, um, which is, a, yeah. for me, a pretty good mix. Um, but in order to keep doing that for the rest of my life, I do need to get this thing called tenure, um, which yeah. in my field basically means you need to publish a book and then start work on your second book. Um, so my first book is out. Um, and then I'm just in the process of thinking about the second one. Got it. Oh, okay. So that's kind of like a little hack, if you will. Or <laughs> but I mean, you still yes. want to do it. <laughs> um, okay, that's actually good to know. So, okay. So the first book, tell us, I, I want to know, like, because a lot of people that listen to the show are authors. 
tell us about like the journey of writing the book obviously then tell us what it's about but i'd also like to know like the ups and downs like was there anything you were surprised about that was harder easier like tell us about the whole thing yeah that's a, those are great questions and part of why i love listening to podcasts about this because it's i think everybody has such an idiosyncratic journey in terms of putting the publishing thing together um so the the book that i just published which is called floating coast is about uh, the last 200 years or so of history in the U.S. and Russian Arctic, where they almost meet at the Bering Strait. So um, it involves a lot of animals. It involves Soviets. It involves, you know, Americans. And um, it was the, the research for it was really fascinating because I I spent time in, you know, archives and museums and talking to people, you know, all over Russia and then all over the U.S. And then wrote basically a draft of what was the book when I was in grad school. Um, and in retrospect, and in talking to other authors, I realized in some ways how lucky that was because, you know, I had funding from my university where I did my graduate work um, at Berkeley to, you know, go spend a year in Russia looking at archives and talking to people and kind of assembling the information. And then I did the same thing in the U.S. for a year. And then I had two years to kind of write the first draft of the, what turned into the book. Um, yeah. So that was, that was great, except then I had the first draft of this book and I didn't know what to do with it quite, except that I needed to publish it kind of as part of my professional advancement and because I had this great story that I wanted to get out there. Um, and most, uh, most folks who have an academic job like I do publish with a university press. And I had, from the, when I really started grad school, wanted to reach a bigger audience if I could, um, which means going with a trade press, which is the kind of press that puts your book in a bookstore rather than, you know, kind of just at academic libraries. They have a very different business model. Um, but I didn't know how to do that. And it was basically through dumb luck that um, somebody who was trying to hire me for a job connected me with a literary agent. And it was through my literary agent that I was able to get a, a trade press uh, book contract. And that's, that's how this ended up coming out with Norton. Got it. Okay, very cool. And then your second book is going to be about what? My second book is about the Yukon River, um, which is where I first lived when I went up to the Arctic. Um, so in part, it's so that I can go back to my old stomping grounds and um, really kind of spend more time in these communities that I know really well. Um, and it's also so that I can write about sled dogs um, because yeah, I still want to do that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. And with it in it, so in academia, Damia, so the, the tenure, what you were saying, because I, I find this really like fascinating, because I know when I was back in college, a lot of professors um, like did write, write books, right? So this is something that like, is it, is it, it's not like you have to do it, but it, it's kind of like, it, it, is it encouraged or, or how does that work? So it depends a little bit on the, the college or university. Okay. They're sort of how you get promoted varies from institution to institution. Um, but at a place like Brown, um, for me to get tenure, which is to say sort of keep my job uh, in perpetuity yeah. or until I decide to leave, I need to write at least one book and then, you know, have pretty significant progress toward the second book before they will promote me from what I am now, which is an assistant professor, to a professor okay. with tenure, which is an associate professor. And then after that, it's very much encouraged that you keep 
producing, you know, writing books or writing articles um, at a place like Brown because it's a, it's a research university. So they think about basically half of my job being research and then half of it being teaching. But some universities, you know, think about the job of professors being much more on the teaching end of things. And so they require less publishing. Um, so it Got kind it. of depends where you are. Got it. Yeah, I just, I love that because I think like, you know, we, we learn it in different ways. Like, like we, we learn from teaching, we learn from writing, we learn from reading, um, and, and we learn from speaking, right? So in my opinion, though, one of the hardest ones it, it is writing. And that's why a lot of people are discouraged from, from doing it because they're kind of like, it, it's, it's, it's hard to like get into the writer's flow. It's hard. Most people just think they're bad writers to begin with. So they have like initially, they just have this like limiting belief. So it's kind of cool that the universities are like, I don't know. I feel like it is in some way it's kind of encouraged because um, I just, writing has changed my life. And just like writing has helped me learn more. It's helped me think differently. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I yeah. Know. I think writing really, for me, like that's how I figure things out. Um, and so the first drafts of things are really quite, you know, they're kind of agonizing because I don't know what I think yet. Yeah. Um, and so it takes a lot of work to produce new thoughts. Um, exactly. Yeah, no, no, ex exactly. And, and I think what it is too is uh, with, with writing is that a lot of people when they're, when they are actually writing, they want their first draft to be like really good. And yes, I, I, like really, done, that doesn't happen too often. For no, <laughs> I don't know why I got some weird accent there, but just letting you guys in on a little secret that doesn't normally happen. Um, so, okay, but so I, I, a question for you here can you, and you probably maybe can't name any students' names, but do you have any like stories? Because I always like to talk about stories on the podcast. Do you have any stories of just like wild? And when I say wild, I mean like just any students that you've come across that were just like, maybe they were like geniuses or like something just different about them, like any cool kind of stories you have from your four years? Yeah. I mean, I, the students that I work with are so amazing and I, you know, it's, it's so great to teach them because frankly, I learn a ton from them. It's not like a one way street, which I think is ideal. Um, at least for me, it's a benefit. Um, I think I'm trying to think, I'm working with a student right now who's doing a project about the ways in which uh, people think about managing ocean resources. So think about fish um, and fisheries. And, you know, she's just undertaken this massive research project. She went to Alaska all summer. Um, she's like deep in crazy files. You know, she's going to emerge from this being like a world expert in this topic. Um, and she's, you know, 19, 20. It's, it's just, it's so impressive um, to see what, what these young folks are doing. Um, and I have other students who, you know, graduate and are writing at the Atlantic or, you know, really? freelancing. I actually have one student who's working in Miami at the paper down there. Um, oh, cool. So um, it's, it's also really amazing to, to see what people do after they graduate and kind of go off uh, in the world. Yeah, no, I'm sure, I'm sure that is awesome. It's almost like, um, I, I can't imagine I was being a teacher and that's why I'm like curious how you feel about it because it's like, it's probably amazing to see them go off and do well, but then it's almost kind of like this, like letting your child almost go. Cause you do build a relationship with like, a lot of your students. Yeah. So, it's a little bittersweet sometimes. Yeah, bitter, <laughs> that, sorry. I couldn't think of the word. That's what bittersweet. Yeah. I don't know why that's but that, that's what I mean. Cause it's like every year you get new kids, but it's like at the end of the year of teaching them, you were kind of like, 
oh, like, I really liked them. And, like, now, like, you know, some of them keep in touch. I'm sure some of them don't. But it just – it's kind of like a – it's like a quick turnaround, you know? It is, yeah. Yeah, even if you teach someone in their first year and, you know, keep seeing them for the four years, that's not very long. Um, And then they're they're off. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, I miss you, man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Come back. (laughs) Um, So, okay, so so kind of summarize, uh, at least for your books, because I want to make sure everybody listening can um, get the books. So first one is already out. The first one is already out. Yes. Okay. And what, what is uh, the title one more time? Just so, and, and where it's located or, or website where people can find you? Yes. So the title is Floating Coast, an Environmental History of the Bering Strait. And you can get it wherever you get books. Um, you can find it linked from my website, which is brdemuth.com. Um, but you can also just go get it at your local bookstore or Amazon or wherever. Got it. Okay. And then the second book, uh, that, that's not necessarily in the near, near future, but coming up. Coming up. It's going to be a while because it, you know, okay. I have to do a couple years worth of research just to get off the ground. So um, Got it. it'll okay. be a bit. Very cool. Well, listen, thanks for coming on the show. I, I think, um, you know, what you're, we haven't actually had somebody, uh, I feel like that's similar on the show that um, what you're writing about. So it was cool to like get this different perspective from like a professor. Um, so very, very cool. And yeah, yeah, congrats on everything. And thanks for just sharing with us, um, this like different, um, just different side side of things. It was, it was cool to chat with you. Yeah. Thank you. This was fun.